Do you have an idea for a business, but you don't know what the next step to take? Or do you already have a business and you're ready to level up? Is it really all about the hustle or can you have some work-life balance? On season two of Business Fluent, we talk with entrepreneurs in all stages of their journey so you can get tips and strategies to avoid the common mistakes and leverage best practices so you can not only grow a thriving business, but you can live your best life. Hi, everyone. We're here with Business Fluent. I'm here with my partner in crime, Tony Gallo, and we're really excited for this episode to have Michelle Tamalo of Fit Technologies, and she's going to tell her awesome story, and hopefully we'll leave with some tips and tricks on how to be a great entrepreneur. So, uh, Michelle, why don't you tell us a little bit about your business and um, your story about, about your background? Great. Well, now I'll start by sharing a little bit about Fit Technologies today in 2021, uh, the fact that we're a managed IT services company. So that means our team acts as the technology department for small, mid-sized, um, large organizations. Um, we have about 130 staff. Uh, we're servicing clients in a, um, 26 states. And our clients range from professional services firms like uh, law offices, architecture firms, um, uh, HR professional services firms like that. We also have um, uh, clients in retail, uh, in construction, in architecture and design. And then we have um, a whole, about 100 of our clients are K-12 charter schools across the country as well. Wow. So our team does everything from help desk, meaning you would call in and it's our team that's kind of helping you with um, the, the technology issue that you have um, to um, having staff on site doing field support. And then we take care of things uh, like network servers, phone um, and cybersecurity. All of that is under the umbrella of managed IT that we do for our clients. Awesome. And so that evolution to um, get to that as our um, business in 2021 was an interesting journey. And I often say that it could be an HBO miniseries because uh, it couldn't be on Lifetime because there was a lot of things that were happening. Uh, and so um, I'll just tell a little of that story from the perspective of in 1999, uh, the brother of uh, our other co-founder, Mickey Tubbs is the other co-founder of um, school one fit technologies um, came to Mickey and me and said, Hey, I have this idea for a web-based software business. And so again, back in 1999, there was nothing that connected home and school. And many of the listeners I'm sure have um, the ability to log in through progress book or blackboard or those types of things to tell, I see everything from grades and homework assignments to announcements and all of those sort of things. But back then there was nothing to market. And so uh, Dan came to his sister, Mickey Tubbs, who is a serial entrepreneur who has, you know, her roots um, grew up in uh, Lorain County and uh, actually uh, started uh, through the home care and hospice business at St. Joe's back in the day and then grew New Life Hospice. And she had um, actually sold New Life Hospice and she was doing consulting work and I was doing consulting work. And Dan said, hey, why don't you come and help me get money? 
uh, to fund this venture to create this web-based software to connect well, home Michelle, and at that point, did you have a technology background? Nope. Uh, Mickey was quite the serial entrepreneur, and I had really only worked in startup type of um, either projects for larger organizations, but um, we were folks who we knew could get some things done and definitely help get funding because, again, at this time, um, getting money, especially in tech, was somewhat uh, easy, even, even then in Lorraine County. So imagine that uh, Dan already had a couple beta schools, which happened to be Lorraine Catholic and St. Joe's in uh, uh, Rocky River. And um, uh, we started working on a business plan. We made a pitch to uh, a venture firm early. It was interesting because that venture uh, person, his wife was a teacher, his mom was a teacher. He totally got the need to, you know, for uh, software like this. And um, we left that meeting thinking we were getting a $3 million term sheet. And uh, believe it or not, literally two days later was the huge crash in the market, uh, the first big tech bubble bust. And so those dollars never came from that venture person, nor really in, um, many of those kind of structures that at that point had been, you know, giving out money um, quite easily, those very quickly uh, dried up. And so it, you know, it was one of those first lessons in terms of, uh, I think entrepreneurship is this idea of adaptability. Um, and so we had to figure out, okay, what do we do from here? And so then there's, you know, the resourcefulness of then approaching different people and different investors and um, just a different approach to this because we knew we had this great idea. Interestingly enough, I think that we were ahead of the game uh, from the perspective of we were almost selling the idea that the internet is going to stay and change the way that we're going to consume data, whether that's as a parent or a student or, you know, as a teacher, but let alone all of us, the internet was really um, this idea of having web-based data um, come to us. You know, and Michelle, so did, when you were talking to those investors, you know, I hear a lot from my women um, entrepreneurs that uh, the investors don't really love to invest in women-owned businesses. Did you feel that when you were talking to investors? We felt that in a way. Uh, it's interesting because it might have been more at play but because we were selling something that people didn't have familiarity with to begin with, sometimes that could have been the reason. Okay. Uh, I do know that there would be times that we, the way in which those meetings happened were connections that were introductions from men mm. uh, and uh, people who were backing uh, Mickey and me in this venture for gotcha. sure. Um, so I do think things have changed significantly in terms of structures for financing for, uh, populations that typically have been marginalized. And I know that at that time for sure, um, you know, we were, we were a women owned tech company. There weren't a lot of those at right. all. Not, 
then in 1999 and not now. So, um, we pressed on for sure because we were trying to figure out how do we fund this idea that we really believed in. And I think that there was also that we were all in. It was such a great idea. And it just so happened that um, Mickey's kids actually went to Lorraine Catholic. And so we got to see our product being used um, and saw what the, really the impact was. So those the money then came in what I call fits and starts, never in a big um, chunk. And so we had to figure out how to make that work, how to pay those de database developers, how to pay those software developers. Um, and so money came in um, slowly. And again, this is before Glide. This is before things were set up at the, you know, at the college and um, the again, innovation fund, all that stuff. Yeah. There's yeah. so much now to, it, the, the world has changed a lot, especially to be focused on, uh, on it and, and technology. It's, it's changed tremendously. Absolutely. And as, um, I think as, you know, glide was kind of getting its stride, we were, um, almost too big for them by the time, you know, we were beyond incubator stage, fast forward to like around 2004 and things like that. So we, um, we started to grow because one of our clients was growing quickly because we, they were an online school and they needed a platform to uh, teach those kids and connect home and school that way. So we um, started to develop custom software for them and you know, started to grow the business that way. The other way in which we were growing was how we you know, this connection to how we are fit technologies now is the fact that as we were attempting to implement our web-based software in any number of schools, uh, they, we would run into roadblocks or the schools would say, hey, this doesn't work. And it wasn't that our software didn't work. It was that their infrastructure in their school was not set up at all to crunch data this way that, that um, was now being done on the web. And then also at that time, schools were uh, implementing uh, multimedia into their curricula. And so they're trying to not only, you know, run this report on attendance, but oh, we're trying to show um, giraffes off of the Discovery Channel at the same time. And so um, a few years into our business, we then started hiring infrastructure talent, network engineers, other engineers, to basically do an assessment in schools to figure out what does their environment need to look like to, you know, be in this new world order of utilizing the internet in, in all sorts of uh, ways, whether it was curriculum or uh, reports and, and other things that we had in software like ours. And so that's how we started to grow that talent base within what, what our company was called then was school one. Mm -hmm. That was actually the name of the software. So as we were developing software, we also were doing managed IT services for schools. And we were doing that basically to support um, this idea that we're, they would be getting this web-based software. But then soon, we had many more clients that didn't use our software, but we were supporting their in infrastructure. Whether that was again help desk, field support, uh, network engineering, server engineering, all of those. So, so Michelle, do you, do you think that the schools were um, prepared to make such a technological 
investment or knew what what was because I you know I'm I'm thinking back to being in school and still receiving report cards where the teacher wrote the letter in, um, and you had to get the signature of your parents once you brought your report card home to make sure you didn't cheat or lie. And, and you know, thinking of like the the movies from the 70s or 80s or John Hughes or you know whatever the heck it was, you know, the kids were going to break in and change grades. You know what I mean? And technology meant you could get into the schools computers and you could you could do things that you know erase those absences that you had where mom and dad didn't know you skipped school <laughs> I mean yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming a lot of that played into why schools may have been reluctant to get into technology I think that it's interesting because I always called our um, clients in those first you know four or five years Oops. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. I should That's have okay. phone, turned That's my devices off. Um, I always call those first clients of ours pioneers because um, they were daring to think about day-to-day operations that were completely different than what they were used to. Right. And so many of our, our clients in those first few years were private uh, schools um, and uh, groups of schools that could make those decisions much quicker than perhaps uh, larger districts, but um, definitely there were a smaller Midview um, was one of our clients. EC was one of our clients. Um, those schools that said, "Hey, we do want to be innovators. We do want to take these steps toward um, using a system like that." On the other side of things, from the managed IT perspective, definitely. Uh, schools could see that the power that technology had in everything from, you know, having computer labs and, you know, getting uh, information to to students in whole new ways. Uh, So from a infrastructure standpoint, it, it, it quickly became a mandate that you, your school needed to be wired and ready for the 21st century, um, which, you know, schools, um, planned accordingly, and we were at that time that we were one of those organizations that were helping schools get all of their backbone um, set up to be able to do that. And everything from making sure that the laptops and desktops that were being utilized uh, made sense for, you know, just from a memory perspective and a processing perspective, as well as, you know, best practices around um, administration and passwords and all of those sort of things. And we've come such a long way now where you know, before you had to physically touch every single one of those uh, pieces of equipment. And now things are pushed, you know, pushed out um, through software to manage those types of things. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And that's, I mean, you almost, you scratch your head and fast forward to 2020 and 2021 and wonder how we would have survived the pandemic had we not gotten so far with IT and with technology, especially for, I mean, kids would have lost two complete, school years. I mean, you know, close to it anyway. Yeah. Um, and you know, what, where we're at and, and, and businesses now you've, you've expanded into businesses, you know, so it is one of those big things until you said the words school one, I, I, I now I remember school one. That's how I, I remember. And I can remember when I first heard what school one did, I could not wrap my head around it. I had no idea. What do you, with school one? I, I don't even know what it is that they're going to be doing, you know, for these schools. So it is, it is amazing. 
it's, um, I'll tell one uh, quick story here is it's so interesting to us because we have now at uh, Fit Technologies, we have a group uh, in data services that use different tools from Microsoft uh, to uh, create dashboards, apps, um, different things from all these different sources of data. And it's so interesting to us because what we're now doing with tools that have evolved exponentially to be able to write that code literally is what our teams were doing back in 2003 to crunch all of those numbers uh, through SQL. Just the pace of which they can do that now is so much faster because they have a whole new, whole new to tool set. But some of those exact same reports that we were creating in 2003, we're creating for clients across thousands of students so that they do want to see how the third graders in my class are doing in math as compared to another teacher's third graders in math are doing. And what does that look like across my attendance level and my zip code and um, my level of my, my parents' education? All of those things, all of those data sets are still being analyzed, the tools in which they can be done, the tools in which those can be developed are just far more efficient. Yeah, you know, the amount of data that's at all of our fingertips is just amazing, you know, and um, I think a lot of businesses, particularly smaller businesses, don't leverage that data as much as they could to really give them some key insights. So um, I think that's an area that particularly smaller businesses can get better at. <laughs> it's, it's one of the areas that's fastest growing for us in our business model is um, our data services team working with um, our current clients to do exactly that, leverage data from their many systems, whether that's an inventory system and an accounting system and, you know, whatever systems running their core business is helping them create those dashboards and applications that are going to help them run that. And I'll kind of make this, um, you know, connect this bridge of how we got from schools. So imagine that again, that I was saying that we had, um, you know, other folks within the organization that were working on infrastructure when we then made the decision to move out of Lorain County, uh, so that was uh, 2005, we wanted to be downtown because we felt like we could then draw more easily from east and west as well as south. And so we um, moved here uh, in 2006. And again, this is one of those stories that's part of the Fit Technologies um, history is that we were going to be in the building a couple doors down from the West Side Market on West 25th. And uh, we were just six weeks from moving. So we were at finish work being done. And we had grown out of our space in the beloved basement of the first Merritt Bank building next to the Applebee's Midway Mall. Uh, we had grown so exponentially, we couldn't fit in that space. So we were so eager to make this move downtown um, six weeks before move-in, the building burned. Oh, my God. And it was like a death in the family because we did not know what to do because everything was geared toward, 
you know, moving all of this, which was 65 staff at that time. And um, that's another sort of one of those entrepreneurial lessons around resilience and adaptability. We had to let go of what we were attached to about where our office needed to be. And we were just so set on being in the West 25th neighborhood in Ohio City. And when that happened, we we needed to, because build outs don't happen overnight. So that day, um, someone from the mayor's office contacted us and said, hey, I heard that that's the building that you were going to move into this journey. We need to find you a new spot. Let us take you around. And we walked into the Idea Center building, which um, for people who are familiar with downtown, the chandelier is right outside of my window right now. Mm -hmm. There's a chandelier in the middle of Playhouse Square. Uh, and so in uh, no, you know, late September of 05, we walked into this building and said, oh, this feels good. Like this feels like this could be home. And at that time, um, NPR, the NPR station and the PBS station were just working on their merger and they were moving in here. So we have loved to see the transformation of Playhouse Square District, uh, you know, since being here in uh, early 2006. Wow. So it's... Um, Always another, here's another um, fun fact, lesson to be learned. Um, we didn't have anything in our lease that says, what happens if the building burns? And there was um, quite a bit of the insurance company of the owner of the building and the insurance company of the construction company. There was not agreement about the cause of this. And then here we were just tenants. Um, and so we had to pay an outrageous amount of money for an organization our size to get out of all of that. Wow. But we needed to get out of that because, of course, that didn't get resolved for years. I probably. want to say at least a year. Yeah. Um, and we had 65 people that were basically in 3,500 square feet. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So multi. Um, so, again, and it's been one of the best decisions for us to be downtown. And it's been, again, amazing to be part of. Um, the you know a transformation of the neighborhood and of the city, and that's where this bridge is. Is so imagine that we're here in downtown, where we're now an organization surrounded by organizations and businesses, and you can imagine that then someone will say, "Hey, Michelle or Mickey or one of our staff, can you have someone come look at our computers at my at our business?" And we said, "Sure." And so we already had about you know, a handful of clients, but we realized we needed to rebrand brand because you can't tell this hour and a half that I've been chatting you up to tell, Hey, how, <laughs> you know, I can take, we can take care of your, uh, you know, your computers and your laptops and your systems and your organization and your business. So in, uh, you know, late, uh, Oh six, early seven, Oh seven, we branded the technologies, uh, so that that was then, the, you know, our managed IT services arm that would then going to service, you know, all sorts of organizations um, at that time. And many of those started down, uh, started downtown. Um, and we just, you know, started to grow our business. And we were, we still have our uh, software development uh, company and group. And we were starting um, to grow our managed IT and we were poised for growth. And then you know what happened. Well, something called a recession happened. <laughs> and so you can imagine organizations whose business was providing service to organizations. We definitely flatlined there. Uh, and then for schools, that 
you know, again, many times schools' budgets weren't impacted, but it caused a paralysis for them as well. So there wasn't growth even in our um, software development. And so like millions of companies across the country, we had to decide what did we want to be? How do we survive this? How do we re-envision who we think we are so that we can make it through this? We also, uh, believe it or not, uh, had acquired one of our clients that owed us a lot of money. We acquired them before the recession, and we were going to do a three-year turnaround plan. So much of their retail business, they were actually a school uniform business. And we understood their system so well that we felt like we could do that in three years. And we were on the plan to do that. And this is another one of those entrepreneurial um, lessons learned. You need to figure out what what you're doing and is the timing, does the timing make the most sense? And it would be good to know if there's a Spanish Inquisition coming uh, or a recession. We probably could have seen that and we should never have bought that business unit. Uh, but we did. And as a result of that, we then had some massive um, stress from our bank because uh, after recession happened, um, our bank decided they didn't want any negative cash flow businesses. And so I always do the line. Uh, they put a line on the spreadsheet and said, I'll get rid of all of these businesses. We don't want any of this business. And we were one of those companies that they came to and said, um, we, we need you to pay your loan back. Mm. And so that put an enormous amount of pressure on us because of course we couldn't pay our loan back because we were in a three-year turnaround in the second year of the three-year turnaround. So um, that's where, again, this would be three episodes. It would be very intriguing, very exciting to be scary music uh, because we really thought we were going to, we thought we were going to lose our business. Uh, and so that's one, again, a, great thing that came out of the recession for us because we survived is that it forced us to figure out who we are and do that re-envisioning that I mentioned. And so it was easy to decide we are selling off um, our software business because our managed IT services were really supporting that. Uh, you know, the sales cycle in schools is much longer um, than in organizations. Uh, service models different. Uh, all those types of things. And so that was easy to make that decision. But then, of course, the sale of that took I all those years of blurred in my head. It's kind of crazy. It would I feel like I would do like a Wayne's world. Like. Mad Magazine. Advertising mascots. B-movie posters. And cartoons. Oh, yeah, can't forget cartoons. If you get the funky connection that ties these pop culture gems together, you'll dig two designers walk into a bar. See, we're a couple of creatively curious pals living between the bookends of grand museums and dive bars. Hey, you know the place, the sweet spot where highbrow and lowbrow become drinking buddies. So join our barroom chats as we talk influential work and uncover stories of how the familiar became iconic. Think behind the music for the stuff we love. Check out our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. And listen wherever you get your podcasts or visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Yeah, 
I talk to a lot of my clients who are partners and in business, and sometimes it doesn't work out so well. And there's some really tough conversations. Um, you know, what do you think the key that you you and Mickey can can still be friendly? Right? I mean, you know, because you know, I, I give advice to people that you know, you when you're in a partnership in business, you really need to have some um, good buy sell agreements and some tough conversations. And you know, it, it's not always an easy road. Oh my god! No, oh my god! If it was easy, way more people would do it, and. They wouldn't, you know, this is a podcast, so you can't see what's happening here, people, but there's lots of wrinkles <laughs> and there's things that need to be done. Um, I mean, I think a, a couple of things is that um, Mickey and I are good partners because uh, I think we think differently. We have different personalities. We process risks differently. Um, I think we have different skills, which, again, is, I, I think, one of those other lessons that I would share to whether you're an entrepreneur or anyone in the working world is knowing what your skills are and knowing what you're good at and knowing what's going to um, motivate you and what scares you. And I think that that's an important part of partnership that Mickey and I um, were really good together that way because we had complementary skills. And I think that the other thing is, is that the stress of any stress that's put on organizations requires navigation through it and the pressure that was put on by the recession and um by the incident with our bank and the fact that we developed this from scratch and here's all of these you know at this point we had about 100 staff so the thought that part of that then is also uh letting go and you know creating changes in those people's lives and all of that those are the things that i think uh, forge such a bond or, you know, create the need to separate. And in our situation, we're, you know, we, we pressed on and had the resilience to, to work through it and do the hard work. So COVID has COVID been good for you? I can see how COVID might've been good for you because with all the people deciding to be remote workers and having questions and infrastructure and equipment. Um, so and it's, that's not a bad word because we're, there are quite a few businesses that are members of the chamber that have worked with the SBDC that oh we gosh, know yeah. firsthand that have just the, the, their businesses off the charts. So it's, it's interesting. Our business has grown the the uh it's taken until late 2020 for some of that growth um to start because i think that as the pandemic started in those first six months it was chaos it was whether you were your organization or a, a hundred person law firm or a 300 person retail establishment everyone had to figure out how are they surviving? What are they trying to do? What are they trying to make happen? And everyone is on a different, um, you know, everyone's on a different part of the roadmap of where they, where they were in terms of remote capabilities and where their policies were, or where, you know, um, and those organizations that had already uh, established remote policies and, you know, their, their systems were set up for that. Many times they didn't miss, a beat. Um, and then there was many clients who 
it was a free for all. And so our help desk was, you know, did an amazing job. I think that help desk calls doubled that first month from what would be a typical month. And then what we saw once organizations were figuring out where they were and how are they um, right sizing or making changes within their organization, then um, very soon through that six, eight months in, people are then planning for, okay, what does, what does our world look like? Uh, and so what, what technology do we need to ensure that we have to make that new world happen or uh, plan for that new world, which is another thing that I think the pandemic uh, caused us to do is we need plan A, B, and C. And, and many of us, maybe people like us were like, plan A is fine. We don't need B and C for heaven's sakes. But I think more organizations saw um, this could shift or this could shift. So why don't we make this investment? And I think the other part of um, to mention here is that the clients that we have, they value technology in their day-to-day -day environment and value technology as a way that they're going to achieve their goals. So many times it's, we're not, um, we're just focused on how do we help you get where you want to go as opposed to in, you know, even five years ago, many times you had to sell people on, hey, this technology is important, where our clients definitely um, are aligned that way. And so now it's all about how do we help you get to where you need to be. So if, if a new entrepreneur came to you, Michelle, and said, I want to start company X, what's a couple things that you would tell them? So I think um, one of the first things I would say is, who's your core group of advisors? Who are the folks who are helping you um, anything from uh, hone your business plan to uh, functionally set up your business? Uh, and then I think that the other part of that is in addition to the that small core of advisors is contacting organizations like the chamber, like SBA, like um, uh, Urban League or President's Council or um, Women's Business Center, organizations whose sole purpose is to help entrepreneurs navigate what is can be challenging uh, landscape. Because depending on what you need, you need help getting to those resources. Yep. And th that's, to me, what's, as we've mentioned, has been such a significant difference from you know, 22 years ago when we started our company to now of the availability of those resources. And so uh, we also, we have, our region is of a size that those resources are available to you. And um, there's so many organizations that can direct you in the right way. Um, you know, Michelle, we, Lisa and I, we interview a, a whole bunch of people. I, I, I want to ask this question only because, you know, you're you're a you're a company of 130, and in you know, I know the SBA still considers you a small business, but mm -hmm. to you, you to us, you are a larger success story. You know, are there diversity initiatives that have been put into place, or and is it something that was important to you guys as you grew the business? Because mm -hmm. you know, so many times we we talk to people, and you know, even how on social media. 
the, the, the pictures that are displayed, you know, do they show people of color? Do they show older, older, younger, um, you know, everything, you know, how, how, what a key that is. And I'm assuming it creates an atmosphere that is completely, you know, um, more welcoming and different mm-hmm. than what a normal business may not be able to experience um, if that diversity is not there. Yeah. So, and you touched a little bit this on Lisa, when you were talking about um, financing, but again, being a women owned business in tech, being a women owned business period, being a women owned business in tech. um, Again, I think I share this with entrepreneurs all the time or just business professionals in general. It's, I think that there's a responsibility that you have visibility to um, people perhaps younger than you or to students or to other entrepreneurs so that you can um, be seen and be visible. And so that is a part, also a part of why it made sense that, you know, Mickey was on the Greater Cleveland Partnership Board and why it made sense that um, we had a spot on the, you know, OTEC um, back in the day uh, when that organization was just developing. We were the first women on that board wow. since the inception. Um, and so that has changed now, but that was an important part of that. Um, also being an LGBT owned business for years, uh, again, the importance of, uh, being out and, uh, talking openly about bringing your whole selves to work. And so that doesn't just have to be about, um, your gender identity or, um, gender expression or your sexual identity, but this whole idea too, of, how do other people who uh, are minorities in businesses like ours, how do we then um, work diligently to recruit more women in tech, record, recruit more people of color in tech, recruit more LGBTQ folks uh, in tech? It's such an important part of, especially when there is um not enough talent. It's how are we exposing this career path, this opportunity in tech to folks who might not have thought about that for them. And, you know, our teams have done such a great job in terms of um, being visible, being open about um, working in an organization that feels welcoming. And I, I would say, I don't have the exact statistics, but we've doubled the number of women in our organization in the last five years and have moved uh, uh, our diverse employees, I think from 8% to about 14%. And for us, we're really proud of that. And we know that the way in which those types of things happen are having our employees be the ones talking about um, what it's like to work in this organization. And again, working in tech, there's there's so many opportunities that uh, it's uh, I feel like we're all need to be ambassadors for this work. No, that's awesome. You know, at being at Lorraine County Community College, it's a big part of our mission is to try to get um, uh, people who historically don't look at really high, higher earning career paths yes. into those, those careers. And so I really admire what you're doing, you know, and the other thing we, we touched on is um, 
you've been involved with Plexus, which for those listeners who may not know what that is, it's the LGBTQ um, Chamber of Commerce in Cleveland. Yes. Um, you know, are there issues or problems that maybe someone from the LGBT community faces that you've seen from your members um, in in the business community that maybe other business owners might not face? Well, I mean, absolutely. I think um, all marginalized communities, those, those communities are made up of people. And so sometimes when we talk about things in abstraction, we forget what that might be like or can't imagine that. We all know folks um, who have had situations in the workplace. And I think it's important that people talk about those different things. Um, I I mean, I'll say another couple of things is that, you know, from an LGBTQ perspective, for example, um, in Ohio, there are currently no protections in employment and housing and public accommodations. Many people do not realize that. And so it is another reason that organizations who are um, putting forward best practices for inclusion and creating welcoming workplaces and having policies that support people bringing their whole selves to work, it's why it's important that organizations are talking about that and sharing that because in this situation, it's still uh, legal to d- discriminate against LGBTQ folks. So for sure there are, you know, and there's national studies and um, we just actually finished a study in uh, Northeast Ohio that we'll be getting results for in early 2022. Um, but there's studies often, you know, there's still half of the work, um, half of people surveyed, um, I believe the survey um, group was 4,000 folks half of them are still feeling not comfortable to come out of work. So, and this is 2021. So this is what, again, we we still have a lot of work to do uh, in making marginalized folks feel comfortable in the workplace. And then if you imagine that I'm a person of color and LGBTQ, holy smokes, um, we've just added uh, all sorts of, um, potential uh, pressures and stress into someone making a job change or uh, deciding to make a job change or having a job, you know, being laid off due to the pandemic or um, any number of things that can happen where you need to navigate uh, the workforce. And yeah, you know, I would. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, you know, it's it, it's it, it's interesting. We had a former guest on one of our our shows that said. Um, the difference between diversity and inclusion is being um, asked to the dance and then being invited to actually dance, you know? And I think when a lot of the corporations talk about diversity, it's like a tick mark. Okay. LGBTQ person, check, you know, black person, check, woman, check, you know, and, but they don't think about really that inclusion piece of it. And I think that's where you, when you talk about bringing your whole self to your office um, and to your work is really meaningful because that's when that inclusion piece really happens, that someone's comfortable to do that. And And it's 
hard work. There's no, there's say, no silver bullet. <laughs> there is no, um, I, I mean, I love pixie dust, so I would just yeah. spray my pixie yeah. dust and if it was all, that's not how this works. And so, and it's so also dependent on the day-to-day interactions of your work team. Well, and, and what I will say is, and I have to say this because it's, you know, you guys started in Lorain County. Um, Lorain County's loss is Northeast Ohio's gain. And the fact that IT is so important to not just Lorain County, but to the 18 counties that compromise Team Neo and everything else, I yeah. think it's just fantastic that you guys are, are seen as a leader in the Midwest. Um, and we hope that um, under the ESOP setup, you guys continue to grow. Yep. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. We're looking forward to it. Yes. And thank you so much for this opportunity to talk with you. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so.